0: A cyborg anthropologist offers thoughts on balance in technology. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Amber Case, author and research fellow at the Institute for the Future. Welcome, Amber.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So give us a brief summary of your background and the projects in which you're involved in today.
1: Sure. Um, I came from a technical family. They were broadcast engineers. They put television on the air. My grandpa, studied ai at university of utah uh, he worked on the fourth node of arpanet which became the first internet so when i was little i was basically surrounded by nerds i was reading the world book encyclopedia which we had from 1960 even though i grew up in the 80s and i remember seeing the entry for computer and it was is like the size of a gymnasium and then i looked at our little atari 2600 and i said hmm there's there's gotta be some difference and I talked to my dad and he said well technology just isn't stable like a hammer you know a hammer stays the same pretty much for how many hundreds of thousands of years but a computer is constantly changing And I said at some point probably the computer is going to fit in the size of our hand I was really excited or like we'll have a device that's like a Mary Poppins bag that's larger on the inside than it is on the outside and in order to get my dad to buy me tech which I could get very rarely. I would have to predict the price of gigabytes and uh, memory cards and RAM and all sorts of other things. And if I got it right, I might get something. I also had a job at age 14 in the dot-com boom, uh, making websites for the mayor of Denver. It was this program called Art Street, which was supposed to get kids off the street. My neighborhood was ranked in like the at-risk youth, uh, section of Denver, Colorado. So I got to go into this program and learn web design and then get really cheap access as at a student discount to all of this computer technology and then, you know, early web development stuff. Then I found out about PHPBB and started running my own forums and by the time I got to high school, I was running popular forums at the school. And I learned about trolling and I learned about IP address banning and MAC address banning and getting hacked and having to deal with that and hacking other things. And I really wanted to go to Caltech or MIT because I thought I would just make companies. I would code. I would, or I'd become an engineer. Um, For a while, I loved theoretical math. And I kind of burnt myself out trying to get into these schools when I was in high school. And I called my mom's best friend up on the phone, who's a math professor. And I said, can you give me some advice to what to do in my life? And she said, sure, don't major in math or science or engineering. And I said, what do you mean? Like, that's all I know. She's like, what was your hardest subject in school? And I said, social studies. She said, well, go get a degree in anthropology and sociology. Go to a liberal arts college where, you're, where you will learn how to think, where you're surrounded by people that are way different from you. And then you'll be able to build better computers for people. If you really want to change how things work, you have to understand people. Go do it. (laughs) And I said, okay. So I got a really big scholarship to a college up in Portland, Oregon. I majored in anthropology, sociology. And at the end of my freshman year, there was a field of study that came out called cyborg anthropology. And that was all about human-computer interaction, how technology affects culture, and the idea of the cyborg not being Terminator or Robocop, but being from a 1960 paper on space travel, that we're all cyborgs as long as we attach external tools to ourselves to adapt to new spaces. And that the quality of those tools will make or break our future, and that design is the most important thing. And I started looking at all these different research papers from the past, Because right now people think, you know, as long as it's new, it's automatically good. But we don't know what's wrong with the new. We know what's wrong with the old. So I ended up uh, looking into these things and I found out that there's a field called calm technology, which is about the idea that the scarce resource in the future won't be technology. It will be our attention. And how technology makes or breaks our attention will make or break our technology and that we need smarter humans, not smarter devices. That technology should work hand in hand alongside us to get us to our goal, and should be the least amount of tech necessary to do that because everything will break. And this came out in the 80s and 90s from Xerox PARC that gave us all these printers. They had spent so much money simulating a future, of pads, tabs, and boards. There's a board behind me. You know, we have these pads and tabs in our hands. And they realized at some point that the interface was really important and how you built the tech really mattered. And so I found their old principles. One of them had died. He didn't even see ubiquitous computing, which we now know as IOT that he predicted. And, um, I got upset and wrote a book on it. And now I've been traveling around the world for the last four years talking about this kind of middle future where we think about, there's one future that's either Terminator or RoboCop and it's like really intense and it's really cool looking, but it's incredibly dystopian Where like, nobody has rights, everything breaks down. And then there's this super utopian corporate future in which everything is perfect. Everything is clean and sterile. And, and frankly, it's boring, right? Where it's where we all live in condos. I mean, some people call it fully automated. Sorry. <laughs> some people call it fully automated, uh, luxury communism, <laughs> you know, they, they have this idea of the space age. Well, I think we need to have technology at human scale. When people retire out of tech, they often buy a farm or run a nightclub. They wanna get back to seeing the original programs grow out of the ground, you know, fruits and vegetables, or they go down to South America and take ayahuasca to kind of buy back the culture that they forgot,
0: you know. Is to that point, is our technology then or our devices, if you will becoming too smart for our own good? I don't
1: think our devices are becoming smart at all. I think um, I think the idea of smartness is totally silly. it's such a short word that we that we use it as a spice to pepper stuff up in, in magazines, the same way that we use AI you know, general artificial intelligence is very different than machine learning and deep learning and and low level. There's automation. There's the industrial revolution. We have to have scales. But because everybody gets obsessed with AI in the 60s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and today, it fails because we put inflated expectations in it. We think there's a world that could operate completely outside of us when in reality, everything that we've done with humans and computers has been alongside each other we work alongside a hammer. And this is a very often misunderstood quote from Mark Weiser, one of the founders of Calm Tech. And he says, a good tool is invisible, but not because it's doing stuff on your behalf, but it's because you focus on the task and not the tool when you're using it. Like a hammer, you focus on the task, not the tool. A good book is an interface that you dissolve into while you're reading it. A smart home is not doing everything for you, it's giving you affordances so that you can more easily control it. And how should you do that? Do you really want to have your volume controlled by a web app? <laughs> or, like, I, you know, I grew up in a smart home, I lived in another smart home, and then when I, my last co-founder and I, we made two other smart homes. <laughs> you know, voice activation doesn't work when you have a dog and the dog barks. Does anyone want to play Mario Brothers with gesture control? or voice activation, (laughs) you know, we think we have this idea that, you know, voice will replace everything. AI will replace everything. Self-driving cars will replace everything. And we have to remember that the whole world, I think like a, a good future is in which it's very much like Star Trek where like in the next generation, you had all the tech that was up in the sky and you could be as high tech as you wanted to. But then a lot of stuff on the earth, you know, Picard's family was still running a winery. They were super low tech, and actually that low tech became a luxury. There's something really satisfying about working with something long-term, if you have that choice. There's the same kind of satisfaction of working with speed and trying to push the edges. And I like both of those things. But I think if somebody's really good at making things or farming, they should be able to farm. And maybe they can have a robot that helps them alongside them, pick weeds, but the robot shouldn't be doing the whole job for them, because it turns out that people don't want complete automation. Some people do. The people that make the tech have an idea that we want complete automation, and people might not agree with me on this, and that's totally fine. But if you talk to, you know, oftentimes the general public, and you, and you have some examples, there was a cake mix that came out, and it, just, and it said, just add water, and nobody bought it. It was too easy. Then they had a cake myth that came out that said, just add eggs, milk, and water. Everyone said, wow, this is so easy, (laughs) and they bought it. And it wasn't because it was easier. It was because people had to put in a little bit of work. And there's been a bunch of scientific research on this, that the more you work for something, the more satisfaction you have, that if you get something too immediate. I was just thinking about my mom working in television and how her job was automated around the time I was 10. And when she went back to work, she was watching a computer do the job she did before, and somebody was watching her do the job. Suddenly, instead of a, a a brief error, the problems were catastrophic. And on a second order of automation, nobody remembered how to operate the original system. So it's not that, you know, automation in some cases is incredibly useful. Like you don't want to have a sewage worker doing everything manually, Right. But we have to pick apart what are humans good at doing and what are machines good at doing. How do we amplify the best of each? We don't expect a dog to act like a human. We have, we have raised dogs to work alongside us and to be our companions. Why should we expect something that's a computer to be like us or look like us or act like us? It's another species.
0: Through most of human history, the pace of societal change, has been measured in centuries. Today, societal change can be measured in months or years. Are 21st century humans or as nations or continents programmed to absorb change at that rate? I mean, you're talking about you know, high tech uh, growing and, and being very intense. Are we, are we able to absorb change at the rate that it's growing? Remember Alvin, Alvin, Remember Alvin
1: Toffler's book, uh, Future Shock? And then Doug Roshkoff wrote a sequel called Present Shock. It's like there's so much going on in the moment right now that we can't even focus on the present. We're constantly thinking about the future. Can we get the restaurant with the best Yelp rating so that we can have the perfect experience, but while we're at the restaurant, we're actually thinking about something else. You know, what are the moments of time that we're actually being human? And I think if you, you know, everybody, people are always talking about like, wow, Younger people are multitasking all the time. And then I asked them, like, weren't you multitasking up a storm when you were a kid? Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you're growing and learning? You have the ability to absorb anything you want. And in fact, you can carry that into your 80s if you want. It's all about your brain's elasticity and, like, being a childlike mind. But I think in the past, we had the idea that you could have a job for 50 years and then retire. That you could live in the same home for a long time, too. We don't have that anymore. We're almost in a state of nature again where we have to fend for ourselves. And it's different. Um,
0: you, you mentioned Xerox Park earlier. Yeah. What understanding did the people at Xerox Park have that would be worth rediscovering today?
1: The people at Xerox Park were having fun. Um, but the most important thing that they had was that they had anthropologists, artists, and historians working alongside technologists. The story goes like this, that Lucy Suchman, who's this anthropologist, was hired to come in and see what was going on with these printers in the 70s or 80s. She noticed that the printers had to be operated by highly specialized people. As their full-time job, the printers were loud and noisy and shoved in the corner. And that the engineers loved them because they had so many buttons. And as somebody who comes from an engineering family, I love things with buttons. I want more buttons. I want complete control over what something does. But the general public was trying to do their job as their primary task. And all they needed to do is press a button and get a copy. So Lucy Suchman said, hey, let's put a big green copy button on the printer. And that's where we got the big green copy button. You could have hired 10,000 engineers. But because engineers like a certain thing, and that's not terrible at all because I am one, (laughs) um, you want to understand how people use a thing. And if it's your primary task to use a printer, heck yeah, put all those buttons on there. But people should have a choice at what level they want to participate in that tech. And there should be not dumbing the system down, but like one key button if you don't want to learn it, and then a bunch of buttons if you want to go deep into it. Now, modern printers have the big green button and they have other buttons, and you can choose to familiarize yourself. There's an easy and an advanced mode. And I think that's really crucial. It's not that somebody's dumb if they don't want to press all the buttons, it's because their primary focus is on living their life. And we have to respect that because at the end of the day, People don't want to automate raising their kids. They don't want to automate volume of love. Some people do. Some people want to send a bunch of scripts on OkCupid to get the perfect match. But not, all, not everybody does. And we need to allow anybody to do you know, the way that they, that they want to interact. And there are a lot of things that we've lost that we need to kind of bring back. And I think one concept from the Greeks is the idea of Kronos and Kairos time. C-H-R-O-N-O-S and K-A-I-R-O-S. Kronos and Kairos time are like the idea that there's Kronos time or industrial time where you wake up at 7 a.m. and by 8 a.m. the meeting is over and you only do a certain thing during the meeting. Then maybe you go on a company retreat and you actually figure out what you need to do because you weren't thinking the normal way. You were watching a sunset, you were eating dinner and then you come back and there's a panic and a crisis at the company so you can't implement it at all because companies run on like this very managerial time. Or if you're a developer and you finally get all of that code and that whole process loaded into your head and then your manager taps you on the shoulder and it just dumps. And you get like, you spend like four to five hours to get back into that mode. You know, I, I had a rule when I ran a startup. I was like, if you're a manager, you do not bother engineers. They all get caves to hang out in. They get big screens. They are the most important people to the company and we need to respect them and we're going to finish our stuff on time, we're going to refactor stuff if you need to, we're going to document everything. <laughs> and it became really important because these managers would just be like, hey, do you want to hear about my cat? And I'd be like, no, you need to go into your special room and do your special meetings so that our engineers can have engineering time. So that's, that's more of the Kairos time is that it's that time that Archimedes had while he was in the bathtub, just discovering the density of materials, you know, so that he could understand whether the King's crown was fake or not, made of real gold or not by comparing the density of gold and weight. It's really important, right? But if our phones are constantly interrupting us and we're constantly thinking about the future and we're in this complete anxiety attack or depression or there's too much and we have to do too many things, we don't get that Kairos time, and it's in that Kairos time, that childhood-like play state, that we come up with the new ideas and the interesting methods. You know, Not everybody needs a hollow lens attached to their face in order to walk down the street. And if we do, then we'll end up just getting a bunch of ads. You know, But if you look at how artists understand these things, they're able to make so many further strides because they're not locked to one discipline. And they're also weirder you know if you hire artists to break your stuff you know as as glorified qa people you'll probably end up with a great qa process that you didn't expect because they're understanding all these different perspectives and and the culture in which it's placed
0: good point amber case author and research fellow at the institute for the future if somebody wants to connect with you maybe they want some more ideas on how we should be thinking about this evolution of being a uh, cyborg in, in today's time. How can they do that?
1: Uh, you can follow me online at caseorganic.com or Twitter at Case Organic, and feel free to send me a message there. Thanks for listening.
0: Absolutely. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.